This is the first time. Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center neighborhood. Here's your host, Jen Sodini. Our first reader is Eden Robbins. She's a writer. She's the co-host of Tuesday Funk. That's every Tuesday at 7.30 at Hopleaf. Next one is February 2nd. She's co-host with Andrew Huff, RIP Gapers Block, right? She has a weekly podcast called Should I Worry About This? Yeah, of of course you should. That's my answer. Um, Monkeythumbs.com is her website. Give it up for Eden. Hello. The Hebrew language was stone-cold dead for 2,000 years, and then in the span of two generations became the national language of nine million people. The original vocabulary was mostly biblical, so they had to borrow words from a dozen other languages to make it happen. I spent six years of my adolescence learning conversational Hebrew three days a week. I quit after 10th grade because I had teenager things to do and immediately forgot everything except the alphabet. It was a passive, bloodless forgetting. It disappeared the way only neglected memories can. Here's what I know about my family. My great-grandfather, Ruben Rabinovich, was born in 1878 in what was then the Russian Empire, now Lithuania. Rabinovich means son of a rabbi, a Slavic coat of paint slapped on the ancient surname Cohen. In 1898, Reuben married Sarah Kaplan, the daughter of the rabbi he was apprenticed to, and like most Jews in the Eastern European diaspora, they spoke Yiddish, an amalgam of Hebrew and whatever else happened to be around. They had my grandfather Nathan in 1899. Reuben emigrated alone to New York City, arriving on March 13, 1905. Sarah and Nathan followed him a year later. By 1910, Reuben Robbins is an English-speaking plumber in Chicago. My knowledge of my family is based on a handful of official documents, ship manifests, naturalization papers, census reports. Without careful attention, history will pick a body clean. It forgets blood and guts and faces and remembers only bones. But memories, too, are fishy. They shift and change. In my family, no one wrote anything down. No one asked questions, or maybe it was just that no one answered them. Maybe Reuben and Sarah and Nathan, the immigrants, desired the comfort of forgetfulness and assimilation. America has always been good at that. America has, in fact, demanded it. When I was in junior high, I taught my best friend the Hebrew alphabet and we used it like a secret code. It was not cool to be Jewish, but it was important to have secrets. We folded our coded notes into arrows and triangles and passed them boldly over the tops of our desks. When you're a 12-year-old girl, fearlessness is a welcome novelty. Hebrew and Yiddish share an alphabet. They share words. But when Hebrew became a language again, Yiddish died. Yiddish was the language of the diaspora, Hebrew, the language of Israel. Yiddish was corrupt, pigeon, ugly. Hebrew was ancient and unsullied. 
Yiddish is a powerless people's quest for the perfect insult. Hebrew is the language of heroes, their struggles and holy victories. Which would you rather remember? At its peak, 13 million Jews spoke Yiddish. Now maybe there are a few hundred thousand left. My grandparents spoke it as a first language and I can't cobble together a sentence. An entire language forgotten in two generations. Hebrew sucked the blood from Yiddish and left it for dead. A few weeks ago, I rediscovered my junior high diary and went digging for my own history. What did I think about those years while I was living them? Was I happy, humiliated, oblivious? Somehow I had forgotten my own life. The entries spanned only four months, from February to May 1991, and overflowed with mundane facts, like how I did on my handbell test, an A, by the way. <laughs> or my plans to go see The NeverEnding Story, part two. R.I.P. Jonathan Brandis. <clears throat> But the more I read, the more I realized that nearly everything I remember from my early adolescence happened in those four months, which left me with an unsettling question. Were those moments so memorable, because, uh, were those moments so memorable that I decided to write them down? Or do I remember them only because I wrote them down? My description of those moments were factual and sanitized as government documents. On my occasional bullying... I got hit by a spitball today. It hurt. <laughs> On my first head-over-heels crush, I think I might like Mike Grasso. I don't know why. <laughs> On my first period, I got my period on Monday. It's kind of uncomfortable, but it's exciting. <laughs> and I didn't even believe that then. Strong words bring events into consciousness in a way that can't be undone. But if you leave details in the realm of memory, then they can remain hazy. You can change them, make them hurt less. Did I know this, even then? My family's oral history, such as it is, claims that Reuben fled Russia to escape the Tsar's army. It's a reasonable guess. Nicholas II was a bad dude who hated Jews and was not known as Nicholas the Bloody for nothing. History tends to remember in aggregate, leaves the personal stuff to us. Three million Russian Jews emigrated to the United States between 1880 and 1924, all with their reasons. My diary ends with an unexpected coda, a quick recap of my summer, dated September 22nd, 1991. It starts, not only did Mike Grasso kiss my neighbor, he Frenched her. <laughs> oh well, that's over. I go on to talk about my many trips to the mall, my summer at music camp, which was the very first time I spent more than a night away from my parents, but which I described as follows. We got up at 6 a.m., sang for three hours, the food was like roadkill, I got zits, there were bugs, I was homesick. <laughs> at that camp, we learned and performed the entirety of Carmina Burana, which is pretty impressive for a bunch of 13-year-olds. But of which I mused, there was a neat opera we sang. <laughs> and finally, I detailed a small victory in the Mike Grasso project. We hung out at the community pool, and I somehow managed to keep my shit together. But the very last line in my diary, the last line in any diary I would ever write, was this. I have to tell you a funny story. 
I have to tell you a funny story. Family lore says that Reuben was kind of a dick. He and Sarah had a loveless, arranged marriage, and when they left Russia, were stuck with each other in a strange land for the rest of their lives. Several years ago, I found Reuben's World War II draft card online. He was 64. Now, this was a story. It had to be. An acrimonious marriage, a life squandered. It seemed that after escaping the Tsar's army, Reuben tried to escape his wife to go to war. It was the perfect punchline. <clears throat> but beware the perfect punchline. Not long after, we found another World War II draft card, that of Reuben's brother, Eli. Two old men trying to go to war? It just didn't add up. Until we unearthed a third brother that none of us had ever heard of. Moisha had died in 1935, leaving four orphaned children to fend for themselves in Nazi-occupied Poland. One was straight up executed by the Nazis in 1941. One perished in Auschwitz in 1942, and two others were on the run, hiding in the hostile Polish forest. <clears throat> I never knew Reuben, and history keeps its own counsel. But here's the story I want to tell. In 1905, Rubin Rabinovich gave up everything to save his family. He left Russia illegally, taking a wretched overseas voyage to a country where he knew nothing and no one. He took up a practical profession. He learned English, changed his name, raised American children. He built a life on the foundation of never looking back. But forgetting takes a toll. Maybe even in all his languages, Reuben still didn't have the vocabulary to talk about everything he had seen and felt. And maybe he got tired of lugging it all around. He'd read letters from his brothers. He'd read the newspapers. Reuben wasn't stupid. He knew he was too old to be a soldier. But finally he said, enough. Enough already. And in a wild moment, he decided that if they'd have his old bones, his worn-out body he'd go back to a place he swore he'd never return and fight for his blood. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Chirp Radio podcast of our live storytelling and music series, The First Time. Our storyteller was Eden Robbins, and The First Time 4 performed Digging in the Dirt by Peter Gabriel. 
The first time four is Steve Frisbee, Liam Davis, Gerald Dowd, and Scott Stevenson. To hear more first-time pieces, check out the series' website, firsttime.chirpradio.org. And you can find other podcasts produced by the station at chirpradio.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.